It is John Willis again with another podcast for the profound Dr. Deming. But we kind of cover all things around Deming in and out. And uh, I've got a great guest this morning. I'm like really sort of excited about this. Dennis, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Dennis Schlagheck, and I'm a, a librarian, academic librarian at Northeastern Illinois University. I used to work at Morton College in Cicero, Illinois, and through that association, I became familiar with the Hawthorne Works Museum that they had there in Cicero. It's one of the was one of the landmarks of the town of Cicero. And besides that, I had a grandfather who spent his life working as an Illinois Bell telephone installer, so I knew something of the company. I'm old enough to remember when the phone company was the phone company. It was Bell Telephone. You didn't go down to the shopping mall to some kiosk and set up a plan. Your plan was you leased a durable phone from the telephone company, and the phone was made by Western Electric. And Western Electric's biggest plant was the Hawthorne Works in Cicero. Yeah. That's great. So I, so I, I was going to ask you because uh, you know I, we'll talk about your book and like I, I think there's a lot to unfold in in the Hawthorne story and and I'm just so happy to have a, so an expert on this subject because I think it's really cool. But what why why were you? I think you've already alluded to why why write a book about Hawthorne. What fascinated you about Hawthorne? Well, I I saw that it was a, a bygone era. It was a golden age that's gone now. You know, America used to be uh, a maker of things. For better or worse, those things have changed now. But most people marched off to work putting something together with their hands, being part of some sort of manufacturing process. And the Hawthorne Works was the biggest of them all. And what fascinated me was how efficiently they did it. Logistics are amazing. Their methods of refining and ensuring quality were remarkable. They invented a lot of those processes. And at the same time, they enabled their rank and file workers to make a great life for themselves. It runs contrary to the the common notions of, you know, the turn of the century American factory or early 20th century factory. It runs counter to that in a lot of ways. Yeah, because, they, you know, sort of reading your book, you know, I, I, again, my first fascination was, well, there was something going on here, right? Which is, you know, shoot, was there a Deming? I think most of the people, you know, in, in the IT crowd are pretty much fascinated by the whole history of Bell Labs, right? And, and all the sort of inventions that have come out of that, that organization. And, but then uh, reading your book, it like, there was so much more, like you said, it was it, not only the efficiencies, and I definitely want to talk about the inventions and the sort of tech that was happening, but like it was, there was a community that was sort of, I, I guess, different, you know, I mean, I'm not a historian in like what it was like in West Virginia in the coal mines and, you know, that stuff, but it sounded like, you know, the, there was this community aspect of the work and life balance and, and, you know, I mean, there was some good side and there was some bad side, but like, it sounded like the good side was very interesting. Yeah, and the the company helped create that atmosphere. You know, even before the studies were done to find out about worker motivation or to create a better atmosphere for the workers, the company had already done a lot to create that atmosphere. 
And as far back as 1911, just uh, six years after the Hawthorne Works opened, was when the Hawthorne Club was formed, the Workers Club, which oversaw their recreational activities, their educational activities. So, and even later on, it ran their savings and loan, it gave out home loans, uh, all kinds of services for the people. As early as 1906, the company had established a pension plan for its workers. Later on, there were discounted stock purchases available to the employees. So it was just a, a, a totally different place. And also, it succeeded you know, in the American system where it's not supposed to be that way. In the free market system, you're supposed to have competition, you know, company A versus company B. That spurs quality, that spurs lower prices. Here we had a monopoly that was sanctioned by the U.S. government, aided even more than the railroads were aided in the late uh, 1800s. And the company, if, you know, it, it ran contrary because they were trying to show, look, Western Electric is really not making that much of a profit because AT&T owned its manufacturer, Western Electric. So when it came to having their rates set by the government, which is part of what they agreed to, they would come in and say, look, we're not making a huge profit with Western Electric. Our expenses are lower. So strangely, their motivation for keeping costs down at the plant was not competition from other countries, but it, from other companies, but from trying to be able to demonstrate to the government that this system was working. And that lasted, as we know, into the 1980s. Yeah. No, I, you know, I have a couple of friends that work at Facebook, right? And it was about three or four years ago, I, I went to visit the Facebook campus, right? And it was interesting because once you got through sort of the, there's like these surrounding buildings. And once you got in, you know, I'm sort of exaggerating a little bit, but it seemed like you walked into a little bit of a Disneyland or Disney World. Like the streets, there were sort of marquee, different restaurants. There was a workshop. Like if you just wanted to go sort of build woodworking, there was a workshop. If, you know, there was, you know, electronic jukebox store, there was all these things. And, and it, it makes me think, you know, I, I think you had said that there was like sports clubs and it yeah. seemed like that Hawthorne sort of had that, like, it, it was just fun work, jump out. It was like you were, there was a holistic approach to. They did. They had all of those activities, the sports activities, just two blocks west of the plant was the Albright Gymnasium from the late 1920s onward. That was kind of the, the center of, of social activities there. Now, inside the factory itself, inside the plant, it was the way you would expect it because they were doing everything from, you know, they brought in raw materials, vast amounts of raw materials, and they had the, the forge, they had a supply, they had manufacturing, just room after room. And I'm sure you've seen the pictures. It's just typically people seated at, at a workstation putting things together. So yeah, the atmosphere inside the factory itself was rather drab. Outside of it, they had all of those social activities, from the sports activities to, to school activities, uh, clubs for every type of hobby. But also, the company did not interfere in people's personal lives. You didn't see anything like Henry Ford was doing, where he was trying to, quote unquote, Americanize his workforce. A lot of these people were immigrants or first generation, 
But the attitude of the company was the, uh, the clubs and the savings and loan, that's your business. You operate that on your own. Once you walk out the gates of this factory, you're on your own. Especially during the 1920s and 30s, you walked right out that door and Al Capone was there to you know, provide for your leisure activities. There were bars, there were casinos, there were bordellos within one. Right down, like right in that neighborhood, right? Like that was. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah. And in fact, years later, Cicero still had that very rough blue collar oh. reputation. They had, you know, there were so many factories in the town that they had these bars that opened at 7 a.m. for guys on the night shift. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you always felt like when I was young, you know, you think of Cicero. Cicero was the place if it was 4 a.m. and you wanted a cold beer and a fist fight, that was the place to that's go. Really, that's funny. So there was, you know, I think there's another interesting, I guess, you know, maybe I call it a dichotomy. I don't know. But that like if we think about Frederick Winslow Taylor, right, some people think he's the most evil thing ever. But in some ways, you know, the American economy and the way, you know, sort of, you know, Western economies grew because some of the things he put in place and forward. I think the, the Hawthorne effect or some of the things, you know, just sort of good and bad to, I, I like I'm asking you because I, I don't really know, but that it seems that you, you know, you'd read one thing and you just talk about the horrors of, of the factory and the way the workers were treated. But then the other thing, it seemed like it was an organization trying to understand yeah. product, the balance of productivity and human activity. Mm-hmm. What, what do you yeah, think? Exactly. And, in Taylor's day, I think he just re- reflected the reality of that day when the worker was was a transient piece of equipment. They came and they went. They were just pieces of equipment, part of the inventory that inconveniently had to be fed and sometimes <laughs> had ideas of their own you know, and needed to take breaks. Hawthorne was already beginning to see that it would be to their advantage to build up a long-term workforce, that turnover impeded their quality, uh, impeded their process. They grew so fast and had such high volume that they had to find some way to keep things going. And that meant finding some way to maintain labor peace. And they bought that labor peace by being very pragmatic about it and saying, well, if people want to stay here, if people want to build a career here, let's do it that way. Yeah, that's not too dissimilar again to sort of some of the Silicon Valley, you know, good or bad, right? Like the, you, you, I, you know, I, I don't think it's the most most long term, but it is. There are these ideas that you know this happy work balance. You know, like one of my first startups that I went to work for, actually, it was out of Seattle, but like I, you know, it was amazing because we had you know pinball, t- we had uh, foosball tables. And, you know, people would just sort of get up. Anybody want to play foosball? You know, and we just sort of stop work and go over there. And it it really did. I mean, you need that, like even in, in, in sort of knowledge work, well, almost especially in knowledge work, but not just manufacturing economies, but that idea that, that you have that sort of freedom to flow your, you know, I mean, you just can't be hitting a hammer all day long. Well, you mentioned, you know, Silicon Valley and their uh, work style today. We see that that is for the more educated employees, blue-collar employees. And we saw this brought into the spotlight during the pandemic, that your frontline workers, 
they still had to work. You know, other people had the option yeah. of staying home and working. Those people on the front lines, those people who actually still deliver something, who are handling a physical object and, and changing it in some way, they still had to do work the same old way. And it was, sorry, you're being put at risk. So we saw, and now we can't deny that there's still that split between the workforce. The difference at Hawthorne was that anyone from top to bottom had those options. They, they didn't outsource anything. The cafeterias, making and serving thousands and thousands of meals every day, all of those people dishing out the food, they, were, they had available to them all of the same benefits that anyone working in engineering and planning had. So it was different. There, there was, I wouldn't say it was egalitarian. You know, there were people who were more privileged and had a much higher position. The bosses did have a lot of control over the workers' daily lives inside the factory. But everyone there, from those who worked on the railroad to those who, who were working in supply and requisitioning, all of them were available to the same benefits. Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's just fascinating. Again, I I I will promote and I highly recommend your book to get a snapshot of you know of a view of America that you know that seen. I you know you know as I think about like the one of the things that 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 has been interesting is it's not just like Deming was there, but there was there's always this thing about Bell Labs like how you know in in, in this case. The, the the Hawthorne Works factory, but there was always this innovation going. You know, I you know my you know so my interest is like you know so from being the Deming geek, like I you know I've read enough about why why she would creating some of his initial ideas about statistical process control and quality control, but it seemed that they just this thing this DNA that's been right. in there forever that just that you know I just interviewed a guy who worked basically in the 70s and 80s at, at Bell Labs, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 he just, when he left, he said, you know, he says, I didn't realize how good I had it, you know? And so what are your thoughts about that innovation that gets us to sure, to creating some, I think- That's a mystery to me too. It's like, how, how do you get that chemistry? Somehow they did it. You know, how do you have, you know, when you look at like 1926 and 27, at that point under the same roof, you had Joseph Duran and Edwards Deming working under the same roof. They didn't uh, know each other at that time, but you had those people there. You had Walter Sheward coming around and doing a tour there. And that's right about the time that Bell Labs was established as a separate entity. The research and development for AT&T had been done at various places. They had engineering in New York and New Jersey, and some of the engineering and planning was done at Hawthorne. During the mid-1920s, there was a big realignment of the company, and they created Bell Labs to centralize all of the research. So Bell Labs in New Jersey does all of that, and then Hawthorne is strictly manufacturing, while at the same time they opened two other factories, one in, in New Jersey and one in Baltimore in the late 1920s. But even with that, even with those factories opening and drawing away some of the personnel from Hawthorne, Hawthorne had about 40,000 people working there in 29 before the depression. Hit. Yeah. You know, and it, the, I think the other interesting thing, I, I told you one of my, one of my you know, favorite quotes from your book and I, and I might mangle it a little bit, but 
you, you said at one point you said that if you were talking about cars, you talked about Detroit. So in the twenties, if you were talking about steel, you were talking about Erie, you know, sort of you know Pennsylvania. Yeah. And but if you're talking about electronics, you were talking about Hawthorne Works. And and so I, I, I to capture that idea, like I think for young people now, I, I try to say, well, think of what like maybe Apple is like now. Mm-hmm. That's probably what people thought about Hawthorne, you know, in, in the twenties. Yeah, it was granite that was there. You know, it was always going to be there. You know, and like I was telling you early when earlier when I was doing tours of the museum at Morton College, you know, I would throw in that line to kind of make that comparison for them. That you know, they remembered that Motown, Detroit. You know, they make cars. Yeah, and I think and Gary in Pittsburgh. What did they make? And they kind of scratch their heads and think about it. I said, "Well, what's the name of the football team in Pittsburgh?" And they say. Steelers. Okay, what did they make in Pittsburgh? And then somebody one time said, football helmets? I said, wow, this is yeah, this yeah, story yeah. has disappeared from their lives, or it was never there in their lives. They don't know anything about this time and place. But that was a big motivator to writing this book. We had all that information at our fingertips, and we still had some living witnesses. And there still are some people who work there and remember it so fondly. And so we have a great opportunity to preserve this story. No, it's so important, too, because imagine, you know, we go you know, to your point. I mean, I, I use, a, you know, sort of a sillier example. I, I, it was a year ago. I, I, I saw this younger kid. He must have been about eight or nine years old in the bathroom. And he kept putting his hands under the water faucet. And he couldn't understand why the water, water wasn't coming out. <laughs> right like you know uh, you know and then you you know that when you talk about like the telephones you know you talk yeah. about like but i'm you know i'm pretty old too right i i remember my telephone on my wall and like as you know, as it modernized you got a cord that could reach all the way into the living room mm-hmm. so you could actually sit in the living room and make a phone yeah, call. i still have my old landline jack in the wall there yeah there you go like there you go. years ago we had the phone there but the, i guess the you know the yeah, I, I think what I was saying is it's really important that you did write a book because, you know, I, it would be sort of it would just be, you know, just not great. Right. If like that was not captured at the time you captured it. Right. Because we go another 50 years and who knows. Right. It might just be, you know, the museum might not even exist. Right. So so I think it was important. I, the other thing, too, and I know this is going to be a difficult question, but me being sort of the Demi geek and, and sure, you know, what would it have been like? So he did his intern there two summers, right? And and yeah. and what would it have been like? Like what like what 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 do you think he would have sort of saw with all that? You know, and and let me just sort of put a part B to that question, which was, I have you know I have these theories about Dr. Deming, and like he he became this ultimate humanist, right? And mm-hmm. and one of my theories is he saw that that sort of like that's not the way to treat humans, and and I I have a feeling there are certain points in his life that affected you know the, you know if you read a lot about Deming he's at his core a humanist right and, and I so I, I wonder like what would have you been like for him to be there as an internship or what would he could have since maybe the the the, the Hawthorne effect studies or whatever is that a fair question or oh no yeah because I've, I've thought about that too but I think it had an impact on him because he had come from such a different background, you know, growing up in Wyoming and small town in Iowa and then being thrown into this experience. It was quite different. 
he had his his nose to the grindstone most of the time. He was doing his work, you know, the the office work. But I mentioned to you earlier in our communication about the, the story when he first started working there. And this story was actually about Deming, but in the Duran book, where when Deming first arrived there for the internship, one of his bosses told him, look out at quitting time because there's going to be thousands of women pouring down those staircases, you know, thousands of, of high-heeled women pouring down the staircases. Look out, you don't get trampled there. So it was a different kind of experience for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and again, I, I think, there's always been some discussion. Did he meet Stewart there? I, I think the evidence is probably not, but I, I, I can't imagine somebody like Dr. Deming, who's very, you know, the other thing about him is he seems to be this ultimate boundary spanner and always inquisitive. You know, if you look at Library of Congress, he just sent letters. If he saw something interesting, he'd send a letter to somebody and say, hey, I read your thing. Can we have a conversation? It seemed like he would have known a little bit about Stewart there. But yeah, and again, we see how how was it that AT&T and the Bell system was so good at finding these people? Or was it something about the system that these people saw from outside and attracted them to it? They wanted to come. Um, I remember with in Joseph Duran's case, it was just sort of random. He had sent out applications to General Electric and a couple other big companies at that time. And he just sort of settled on, well, I'll try Western Electric. But Western Electric was doing recruiting of electrical engineers in, in colleges as early as like 1910. And they were pioneers in that area too. They were going out and, and looking for the talent. That's pretty cool. Now you had said there were, there were some other sort of interesting inventions there that most people don't know about, like the, the high vacuum tube and, and, and stuff. Yeah, like that. that was that enabled coast to coast, long distance phone service. Lee DeForest had come up with the audio on the vacuum tube, which he was trying to apply to uh, rudimentary forms of radio. He wasn't having much success. Harold Arnold at Bell's at the not, not Bell Labs then, but AT&T saw that and had AT&T buy the patent to that and they improved it. They made it a higher vacuum and that enabled it to enhance and allow transmission of the signal much farther. So from 1911 to 1915, in a brief span of time, they were able to create coast to coast telephone service which was still you know, expensive. And as we know, up until about the early 1950s, all long distance calls were still operator assisted, but they made that possible. Mm. Oh, wow. And then also they had a lot to do with motion picture sound development. And again, they were working parallel with a man named Theodore, Theodore Case in uh, upstate New York, who was just one of these you know, backyard workshop guys who was independently wealthy and had the time to roll up his sleeves every day and tinker around with electronics. And in his case, too, he was working with Lee DeForest, who's an interesting character who seemed he had ideas up to a point, but then he was very interested in promoting himself and he was very difficult to work with. And 
you know, sometimes as we saw with the audion, he didn't quite complete the idea. But in the case with Theodore Case in Auburn, New York, they were working together with a while for a while, and then Case decided to back away from him. But Edward Kraft, who was the chief engineer at AT&T, was in touch with Case, and they were kind of comparing notes back and forth. So the sound system that Western Electric developed was the sound on disc, which is the, the Vitaphone. Rather impractical, but when we think of, you know, today we would ask, what was the first sound motion picture? It was the jazz singer. There were some other ones that had used a recorded soundtrack and sound effects prior to that. And Case had done some uh, short film, including one, I'm sure it's on YouTube, but it's called Gus Visser and His Singing Duck. (laughs) So he did these, these short films like that. But his system was better, and it's the one that we use today up until digital sound with the soundtrack imprinted on the edges of the film. So eventually, Ted Case sold out of the business, and AT&T bought it, and Western Electric was manufacturing that system. And eventually, by the early 1930s, Vitaphone was gone, and Hawthorne was lucky that movie sound came in because at that time, 29, 30, 31, the depression hit. Mm -hmm. A lot of their workers were laid off. They went down from 40,000 to 7,000 in three years. But 10% of the workers remaining were manufacturing the sound projectors and the loudspeaker equipment for movie theaters converting across the country. Wow. Wow. And you had mentioned also there was, I think that, you know, I, you know, I've got Deming on my brain, right? Because, but you know, like this, there was some really interesting stories about Deming aiding the World War II effort in, in some, you know, taking some of Schubert's work. But it sounds like Hawthorne, you know, sort of was also involved in World War One success yeah. in some ways. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, at that time, Hawthorne was the exclusive Western Electric manufacturing plant, and this was the first time that radios, radio communication and telephone communication were being used in warfare. So all of that equipment that was shipped overseas came from the Hawthorne plant. So basically what they had to do was manufacture, transport, and set up a working telephone system on the battlefields in northern France. And they succeeded in doing that. In fact, there was one regiment in Signal Corps, U.S. Army Signal Corps, that was made up entirely of Hawthorne employees. So they just took, you know, these skilled employees and sent them into the Army, and they put their training to work with setting up the telephone system overseas. And also Western Electric developed the first ground-to-air, air-to-ground radio system. Wow. That's fascinating. So in one of our correspondents, you had mentioned that that the you know, that, that Hawthorne works, you know, had a pragmatic approach. Did, did you so one of the things that Walter Stewart, Walter Stewart, Deming talks about Stewart giving him this book by C.I. Lewis called Mind in the World Order on American pragmatism, like the first philosophy. Did did you sort of was that a reference to just using the word pragmatism as just pragmatic or 
Did you? Did uh, that's you, just the way I saw how they operated. Okay. I think it was because they were people of science. I think they left their prejudices aside okay. and they were just looking for talent and they were not trying to be pioneers in worker relations or anything of the sort. But they found that it was just as a practical matter, it was better to treat people well and to have a workforce that took pride in what it was doing. And I think that they sincerely did. I come across that so much with the people who used to work there, that the word respect comes up a lot and the word pride comes up a lot. And I know that meant a lot to me. That was surprising to me because through my work career, you know, I've worked for companies like Sears Roebuck and Company, you know, 10 years with them and out the door. I've seen living examples of poor management and poor administration, uh, just tone deafness and a cluelessness about how things work and what people expect from a company. And it, it's hard to put your complete effort behind a company that you know is running around blindly, bumping into walls, you know, up in the executive suite. But if you trust that the people at the top know what they're doing, that makes a big difference. Well, and the, the, I think the other thing, like a lot of the stuff that, you know, that like I, I work in a lot of sort of IT, large, you know, infrastructure organizations, and how do we get sort of leadership to change that that, that you know, sort of command and control or structure and more like Deming's approach, you know, that there's a sort of symbiotic relationship between the worker and the, and even more so, you know, where the, like the leadership has to sort of, you know, take an approach like that. You know, it has to be true leadership. It has to have empathy. It has to sort of have an understanding Let the workers take pride in their workership. But then at the same time, it, the culture has to evolve to, it sounds like possibly Hawthorne had this, like, like, what do you do for a living? You know, you can say, well, I, you know, I turn these rivets into this or, I, you know, I put, I solder this into this or whatever. Or you say, you know, I help build telephone factories. Like, you know, how you think about who you are, you know, when you sort of think about your work. I mean, this is one thing that, that in Japan, you know, that, you know, they always say Toyota, like everybody felt like they were part of that system. Oh, yeah. that, that you, you swept the floor, you were helping quality for building cars. If you did the brakes, it sounds like Hawthorne had some of that. Yeah, they were understood that they were part of a, of a process that turned out something practical and something that you held in your hand and something that everyone yeah, had. Right. Well, they could see every day all of those raw materials rolling yeah. into the factory. Yeah. Uh, at, at one point, something like 5% of the lead that was mined in the United States was going to the Hawthorne Works. Oh, yeah. and, and again, the lo- logistics amazes me because they had raw materials that had to be shipped from all over the world, but somehow they organized it and did it so well and so efficiently Efficiently, that this product was able to come out working on the other end of the factory. You know, I I was just thinking, I love doing podcasts because it sort of, it takes sort of other ideas I've heard. There's a guy, Steven Spear, he's he's one of the more foremost lean writers. He writes, you know, high velocity ads. He's a really friendly and nice guy, but you know, he he one day in this in his interview we were doing said that, you know, the reason Toyota, you know, like I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but, but the success of their pull system was that Toyota was able to, you know, get a mind share there that, 
you know, this is even before they got to America, right? Or I had a success in America that, that somebody, you know, was going to pay like a high percentage of their yearly salary to buy a Toyota car. And that they felt uh, that, that, you know, that they were part of that, right? Like they, they wanted everybody, no matter what it was, but, the, but I, until you sort of described the telephone thing, I think there was an added peach, which was the sort of tactile that they could see the car. Yeah. The neighbor got the car. And I just realized that's probably Hawthorne because, you know, I think there is this thing where you can set a mindset about like, I'm not the person who sweeps the floor. I'm the person who produces, you know, in- initiative of quality to create telephones and telephone factories. Mm-hmm. But when they went home, they saw friends and neighbors with the thing. Oh, I, you know, that model oh, I yeah. built. And it, I think that that's the icing on the cake probably is to be able what Toyota had, which was like, you could see the cars they built their mother, their brother, their neighbor. I guess that was probably the same thing in Hawthorne, right? Oh, definitely. Because every household, you could see, you yeah. knew that this telephone was durable, that this thing worked. You picked up that phone and, you know, back in those days, there was dropped calls. No, there were no dropped calls back then. You picked it up and that thing worked for you. They understood that, you know, that was their job, that, that, was, that each person on the line there was part of a process. Very cool. So any thoughts about Dr. Deming? You know, you, it seems like you, you've sort of, you've followed, you've read Duran's books and mm-hmm. any thoughts about his, a lot of times in his podcast, you know, if it wasn't very specific, my first question is, what do you think the impact of Dr. Deming is today in, in 2021? Any thoughts about that or Duran? Or? I think they both understood that it, it wasn't a matter of coaxing more out of people. There are limits to what you can get from people. I think it was a matter of understanding the process and finding that there's a point in the process that needs some sort of improvement. It's not just a matter of hanging up banners with slogans about high quality and so forth inside the factory. It's having an understanding that you know the whys, why, even if you're just turning rivets on something you understand why you're turning that rivet yeah no awesome so so what do you you know i guess uh, what are you up to today like what, what are you finding very interesting and, and anything you know and then i guess sort of closing how would people get a hold of you i'll definitely post your book link and all that but well i'm seeing now in the as we're hopefully uh winding up the pandemic that once again, people are taking another look at their work environment. You see a lot of people who are questioning this, let's fight traffic and go into the office for 40 plus hours every week and sit at a desk. And you know, no matter how they try to realign the furniture inside the office, yeah. it's still <laughs> the same thing. So a lot of people are sitting back and they're discovering there has to be this work-life balance. And you know, I think, well, this is the same thing that nearly a century ago Hawthorne was addressing, that they understood that there's there's a holistic approach for these people who are working for them. And it, it's not just, you know, these people aren't just utensils. And as much as, yes, they relied on statistical charts and statistical controls to keep the process moving along, but at the same time, they understood Human beings are more than just statistics. And 
I think if the workforce understood that there was something in it for them, you know, they would contribute more to it. It, it always seemed strange to me that here was AT&T and the Bell System, which was the most hyper-capitalist organization. Right. Yeah. So much profit, the most profitable corporation anywhere. At the same time, in the heart of it, inside the Hawthorne Works, you have the Hawthorne Club and their savings and loan. You know, if I could use the word, it was socialist in its heart there, but at the same time, it was very capitalist up to a point, because as we were saying, it was a monopoly with government sanction. So it's this sort of hybrid animal that, you know, it's not a government entity. It's not, uh, you know, an independent company, but somehow they worked it out and it worked extremely well, where everybody came out a winner. Very profitable. People built lives in, in the place for generations. People still love the place and they made a good product and they had yeah. satisfied customers. Well, it's interesting. You read the comments and, you know, on your Amazon for your book, there, there's these tributes like I work to Hawthorne Works and they're just beautiful tributes or my father worked there. You know, like, yeah, they, they, like there's uh, the reaction to your book is just a lot of people with nice sort of memories of that process. You know, I think the the the, the sort of the meta opportunity here is that you know i think to me at first i thought Hawthorne was just interesting place deming happened to be there great great dual story you know my, my fascination deming and i can tell a, a great story about this community that nobody knows but i think after listening to this podcast myself that i think there's an opportunity to sort of learn more yeah. about like how we should learn from our past mm-hmm. look at you know like any history like war history or sort of organizational history and uh, it seems like there should be are there is there really a stronger other than your book a strong body of work other than the Hawthorne work I mean the Hawthorne effect and all that um, about what we just talked about mm, there's a couple of books that were written on it there's book called Manufacturing Knowledge, which was about the tests themselves. And then a book called Manufacturing the Future, which is a history of Western Electric. And they both go into this quite a bit, you know, the whole history of the company. And well, another thing that I think is significant is that, you know, you could call the system that they adopted welfare capitalism or paternalistic, but it was different in a way there because it wasn't Strictly paternalistic because I think it's important that there wasn't a father figure at the pinnacle of of AT&T. Yes, there was Alexander Graham Bell. His name was on the company, but he was out of the day-to-day decision-making by the early 1880s. And I think also the fact that he had established the company and worked on his invention as a public service, it was meant to help hearing impaired people. Mm, mm. And I think that spirit infused the company down through the years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That here we're performing a public service. And, and that's what Theodore Vail, who was the head of AT&T for about 1913 through the World War I years, he understood, you know, here's what we're about. At, at that time, well, prior to that time, after the patents had expired, there were other companies competing with them. 
and they wouldn't connect with each other. It would be similar to if you had Sprint and I had Verizon today, we couldn't talk to each other because they were different systems. They all saw that you just connect up all of the different phone systems and they will find it to their advantage to become part of the Bell system. And they did. And that's what made the Bell, he really established the Bell system, you know, one system, one service. And, you know, I think if there was a father figure, it might've been Ted Vale. But at the same time, when Hawthorne Works was established and grew, there wasn't a big brother like Henry Ford or somebody who was dictating their philosophy on you or not even, you know, there were other companies like, you know, George Eastman at Kodak or just General Electric, right? Too, of course. Yeah. And the same thing. It was different at Western Electric because they gave that autonomy to the workers. Yeah. Wow. They did well with it. And, you know, the one story that I stumbled on that really told the story that the workers understood that they had a stake in it and they could make their lives and their children and children's children's wow. lives much better. I came across, you know, when I was trolling through some census records for Cicero, Illinois, there was a guy named Frank Silar, C-I-H-L-A-R. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. But like so many people back then, he was an immigrant from what is now the Czech Republic, born about 1870 or so, comes to the United States around the turn of the century, a wife and, uh, you know, children around the dinner table. By 1920, he's living in Cicero, a few blocks west of the Hawthorne Works. And he was a foreman at a coal yard. I don't know if he worked for Western Electric or probably with them because Western Electric was a huge consumer of coal. They were burning 10 carloads of coal every day. Okay, yeah. plant there. But I know that on the, the 1920 census, his daughter Rose, who was 16 at the time, was a, an inspector at an electrical plant. So I'm assuming that she was working at Western Electric. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I checked farther and see that Rose gets married in the early 19, in the mid-1920s. She starts a family of her own. 1934, she has a son. And uh, Frank Seiler probably met the son. He passed away in 1935, but he probably held this one-year-old new grandson mm -hmm, in his hand. Mm -hmm. Grandson grows up joins the Navy, becomes a Navy pilot, and gets into the space program. His grandson was Eugene Cernan, who, last, as of this point, the last man to ever walk on the moon. So he was leaving the moon for the last time in late 1972. He reached out his foot and scraped his daughter's initials into the surface. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. You know, so now we have Frank Seilar, who's an immigrant. Yeah. Oh, you know, and 80 years later, his grandson is on the moon and his great granddaughter's initials are on the surface of the moon. Wow. I can't imagine, you know, because it was you, you so I, I started to get sort of goosebumps, right? Like, imagine like the whole, you know, I've, I've looked a little bit, you know, I'm not a historian, but I'm sort of geek about like, you know, what, what it was like in New York. You know, I, I've had my supposedly my great grandparents, like three, three brothers came over from from Ireland, wound up like in you know somewhere between you know, 1870 in new york city you know 
one of them actually arises, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll cut this part out, but he arises to even be part of Tammany Hall. And there's like this hall, this like, you know, and actually not all very <laughs> flattering either. But like, but like New York was like this, like, like throw people into it and like only the strong survive. But it sounds like Hawthorne works was the true American dream. Like that's where good. you know, like that's like this is our hope is supposed to work for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's uh, there's probably a beautiful book in those kind of stories you just told. You know, especially you give people the opportunity and you follow the trajectory, you know, of the of the sort of butterfly effect of what they go. Right. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. That was brilliant. Well, I really enjoyed this, Dennis. I mean, it was just if, is there any, would you like people to get a hold of you? Certainly the book, you know, I think that people should read the book. Is there anything else if you'd want people, if they're very, if they're really interested in, which they will be. You know, uh, I'd say, you know, look up the book. Arcadia, or it's available on Amazon too, but you can go directly to uh, Arcadia Publishers. And myself and my co-author, Kathy Lance, would appreciate that. You know, we hope people will maintain an interest in this subject. And you know, I'm glad anybody still takes an interest in the subject. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if it takes a little blip here from, I mean, I don't, I don't have a massive, massive audience, but, but hopefully uh, it, uh, most of the people are going to be very interested in this, this story, I think. So, Good. well, thank you so much, sir. Um, All right. Thank you for getting in touch with me. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Thank you.